0: We have got for you. I'm Charlie Beckett. You may have seen me earlier. I run Polis. I'm based in the LSE. I'm no consequence in this session, but I'm delighted to have three people uh, that we've done events with before, actually. I've been working with, uh, on the far left in a minute, Ruud Biermann, who um, I've been working with him on a EBU, European Broadcasting Union, research project looking at the future of public service media. Ruud cares, cares about that because. He's a veteran uh, public service TV uh, broadcasting executive from the Netherlands who's now working with EV on this future project. Um, Silla Benko is a Director General. She's Director General of uh, Swedish Radio, uh, which is uh, one of the most innovative uh, public sector broadcasters I know of in terms of its work with uh, social media. Uh, as a way of doing its journalism but also as a way of connecting to uh, its different audiences in Sweden so Silla's going to talk about that and the role of trust in it and Trisha Barrett who is I don't want your official title but you handle that user generated uh, content stuff Uh, social media hub that Mary Hockaday was mentioning earlier at the heart of the BBC newsroom and he's going to be showing a couple of examples around verification, getting things right so with no more from me, Ruiz is going to come up and present, then Silla is going to present, and then Trisha's is going to present, and there'll be, we hope, a little bit of time at the end for you to ask some
1: questions. Yep. Okay, I will, hello everybody. Um, I will talk about Vision 2020, which is a new project of the EBU and the position of trust in that, very briefly. And then I would like to share with you six examples of how a public service broadcaster can strengthen his position or her position. I'm not sure about that. Uh, as being a trusted source. Since Charlie uh, said to me that he will keep track of time, I have to be very fast, so I will skip a few things along the way. Forgive me for that. But first, uh, the next slide, please. The question is, uh, this is about the project and uh, this uh, speech. The next one, please. Um, Can you trust a guy talking about trust coming from Holland? Because (laughs) Holland is a country where they export veal but next slide, please, it's in fact horse meat. (laughs) Um, And uh, it's also the country where one of its famous writers said the following recently on the meat scandal, we, the people, want to be cheated, but it feels a lot better when we are cheated with veal, next slide, please, than with horse meat. (laughs) And uh, it's quite clear that I don't belong to this church. Uh, I'm from Public Service Broadcasting. I believe very much in the search for truth, the ambition at least, and in, in integrity and uh, the search for objectivity in the end. Uh, the next slide. Uh, this is to show that I worked at Public Service Broadcasting, so we can skip that. Uh, this is the project Vision in 2020. It's a new project at the EBU. It's the first time all the members of the EBU engage in an ambitious project like this. Um, It's about uh, uh, finding answers on, uh, let's say, the changes in the media landscape in Europe and the impact it will have on public service media. And, of course, this is propelled by the fact that a lot of EBU members are under pressure. Um, Next slide, please. The basic question we want to answer is how to be indispensable in the eyes and ears of our audiences and stakeholders. So it's about... The perception, in the end. It's not on what you think yourself. And uh, the question is how we do that. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, We started a few months ago with uh, analyzing trends, of course. The next step is what impact will they have on uh, uh, public service media. We will uh, try to speak with people inside and outside public broadcasting about uh, uh, what role in the future uh, there will be for public service media. Uh, Are there new ideas on this? Um, And I can tell you, uh, it's a complex journey. It will take about a year from now on. We have three expert groups uh, composed out of members, and one of them is headed by Charlie, uh, trying to find uh, best practices and recommendations. In the end, it will not be uh, uh, one scenario or one answer or um, uh, one strategy. It will be, hopefully, a toolbox of ideas and best practices on... Uh, uh, changes you can uh, decide for yourself, and every member has to propose his own strategy out of these ideas. That's the ideal. Um, how would such a toolbox look like? Look like? And I made a next slide, please. A small uh, a, a draft uh, sketch for myself. Um, what you see on the inside are the values. On the circle, you see a number of activities and issues that a public service broadcaster can and, in my opinion, should work on, and on the outside, you see the impact uh, a public broadcaster can have in society. Um, Because of time, I will not... uh, But the idea is, yeah, basically, if you work consistently from the values, and you do the right thing on these uh, issues and activities, and you do this consistently over the years, the chance that you are uh, winning the hearts and minds of the audience and that you are uh, uh, indispensable is growing. There's no No guarantee, guarantee, of course. In the next slide, I try to uh, address where trust is involved, because this is the uh, issue we are talking about here. And as you see, there's a lot of blue. Um, In in fact, it means that uh, trust is, um, and and being reliable, is not only about the programs, as you see on the right side, but it's also about the institution. Today, uh, uh, um, I think quite some EU members of the service broadcasters uh, enjoy a high level of trust. Um, and the question is, uh, uh, will that stay that way? And um, I have a bold statement that helps in the debate here, I think. The next slide, please. Uh, my answer would be, there is a, a big role, provided you do your homework. Um, um, and why I, am I optimistic, at least, In daytime, at nighttime, sometimes (coughs) I think differently. But um, coming from a country where public service broadcasting is heavily hit by budget cuts, as some of you know, probably. Um, There are three reasons I would like to mention here. First of all, the need for a trusted source is uh, is growing, it's not uh, uh, diminishing. And if you look at some of the trends, uh, maybe that will explain why I'm saying this. I think if you look at the European societies, they are getting more and more complex, and that asks for, I would say, uh, a, a better analysis by journalists. The second one is the erosion of quality journalism, as described in the book by Nick Davis, who will be later speaking about it. The fragmentation of audiences and uh, the risk of... Um, let's say, foxification. That means that you have uh, uh, more and more media that bring proof for their own parish. Polarized media situation as the USA is not really fast uh, to be uh, entered in Europe, but there is a risk. And the fourth one is, the, of course, the new kids on the block, mainly from the USA, loaded with cash, uh, access to global content. Uh, using the opportunities provided by the EU, who works on the liberalised media market, and, of course, the changes in the value chain. Second reason, I see a number of public service broadcasters changing from a fortress to a network, at least taking the first steps. And um, I will not explain too much about what it is. Read the speech Charlie uh, uh, did held two months ago in Hilversum. Um, uh, what is a networked public service broadcaster that's more engaged with, engaging with the audience and listen to Sila who's uh, uh, running uh, Swedish radio and they are already on the way to this networked broadcasting I would say. The third reason and um, is that I see uh, the project didn't start but I, if I take my own uh, knowledge I see Many opportunities, many uh, best practices, many examples where already uh, uh, public service broadcasters have programs that enhance their position as a trusted source. And I would like to share six examples of this. I have to say, next slide, please. They're from only three countries because, as I say, I just started. They're only from the television sector. I'm sorry, Sila. Um, and. Um, the first one is a, a nice one I think, um, it's from Holland, and the issue here is about opening the newsroom. Um, it's called the alt Wat monitor oh there's a clip, it's already...
2: The Netherlands is a great country, but there's always room for improvement. That's what we want to achieve with the alt monitor A new kind of journalism, an experiment, transparent and interactive. The Altate VOT Monitor focuses on important social topics such as healthcare, education, food, and sustainability. These are topics that matter to us all and about which everyone has something to say. The Altate VOT Monitor gives you an exclusive look into our research process. It's a digital and interactive research board, allowing you to monitor the progress of our research live, complete with notes, documents, interviews, and open questions. Questions need answers. Your answers. With a simple click you can participate, share interesting reports and videos, send us confidential documents, state your opinion. Everything is possible and the options are endless. But you should be critical too. What's missing? Are the allegations true? Point us in new directions. Because if we work together, we can see the bigger picture. And when that picture is complete, we can eventually tackle and change things. So, observe and participate at the Altair Vot Monitor.
1: So what you see is a tool, and uh, the interesting thing is that they really uh, involve the audience from the beginning: what topic to choose, till the end, what do we, <coughs> and the follow-up. The next one is about understanding the audience you recognize this one. This is the crisis in uh, Norway, covered by NRK. Um, as, I, as Charlie said, I come from NOS, which is uh, uh, the biggest news uh, organization in Holland. And um, uh, w- w- when it's about trust, of course, in the moment of crisis, that's the, the, the moment when it counts. And uh, the NOS, like many others, have uh, public broadcasters have a strong position there. But... Um, um, what we do at a moment like that is that we claim almost all the channels and all the airing time and do our journalistic duty. But I saw at NRK, as far as I understood it, uh, the next level. And that is that um, um, in the first few days when this uh, was aired or covered by it, the focus was more on consolation and connecting with the audience than on, the let's say, the core activity of journalism. um, and only after a few days the focus changed and it became more first line journalism and I think that's a a level of maturity that that, uh, at least we at NOS can learn from understanding the audience as a uh, a theme the (coughs) third one is uh, um, about being self critical this is a Dutch program called Media Logica it started last year Um, And in my opinion, it's an antidote against a trend you see in many newsrooms also in ours. To be faster and faster, uh, to give more attention to rumors, to treat politics as a sports event, uh, to uh, uh, point at scapegoats instead of analyzing deeper. And this is journalism about journalism. It's, It's focusing on what do we actually tell and what is actually happening. And um, um, it started uh, last year, and it brought about some major hikes in a different, uh, it put it in a different daylight. One of them is a a small town. I don't know if I have time to explain it, but this is about a small town in Holland called Gouda. And um, uh, what happened is a few Moroccan guys uh, were fighting with a bus driver. And this became so huge in a few days, propelled by the media that in the parliament, a lot of political parties asked the government to send the army to Kauru. As it turned out, in a, in a transmission a uh, 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 broadcast by Media Logica, it was nothing more, in the end, than just a few Moroccan guys hitting a bus ride. So it was, uh, in my opinion, uh, a great way of showing that you can be a trusted source to criticize yourself in this. And the fourth one is about attitude towards the audience. I will not go deeply into this because it's not really about journalism, but what it shows is the Swedish corporation, and SILA can maybe explain more about it, that collects the license fee, thanks the audience in a very creative and humorous way for paying the... Uh, license fee. License fee.
3: <laughs> no TV tax.
1: Quite a big difference. Yeah, I'm sorry for that. And... Um, and that's that's uh, an attitude. It's, it's uh, more service-oriented, it's not humble, uh, and it's the opposite of the arrogance we sometimes have. For example, not answering letters of the audience. Um, the fifth one. I have to run very fast. Um, it's about diversity. And this is from a Swedish uh, television company, SVT, probably a broadcaster also. Uh, and it's... Um, in my opinion um, uh, the case that the more you are capable of showing different angles and different interests and perspectives on the subject uh, the better you are and the more trust in the end you will gain um, but the question is uh, uh, how to do that if your uh, audience is changing rapidly and you have a fixed or, or a staff on fixed contracts and you have budgetary problems and uh, this is one little tool that uh, could help very much. Uh, SVT did a, invested in a sur- survey, uh, surveying uh, their own staff. What convictions do they have? What prejudices do they have? Uh, how do they look on, on, on a, a lot of topics? And compare that with a survey in the population. And this raises awareness, and I think in the end it will lead to better programming, to better journalism. The sixth one. And the last one. Um, This is a very dull picture in the end. You see one guy. And this is about craftsmanship and courage, I would say. It's a a, a Dutch program called DWDD University. It's almost unpronounceable. But um, um, in my opinion, being a trusted source uh, brings also the obligation that you bring the big issues of your time. That you do things about economy, very and not easy things. That you do things about philosophy, or religion, or in this case, science. And that you really try to, to have the, the, the big picture of this. And at the same time, reach a mass audience, because there's the trick. And um, we know that it's hard, but this shows that it's possible. Here you see one guy talking one hour in prime time television on the main channel in Holland. Last spring, one year ago. And he did it again in the fall, reaching a mass audience in the first, in the first uh, transmission about the Big Bang and the evolution theory. And the second uh, uh, broadcast was about nanotechnology. It's possible. It's about making good programs popular in the end. Well, this was a, two more slides. I will skip this one. Time Time up. Shall I explain why I have a horse here? Why not? <laughs> uh, just leave a bit of mystery in their lives. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 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 Thank sticking with us. Yeah. Yeah, so and you. Yeah. you. you. you this myself I think. Okay. Well, hi everybody. Uh, the key word for this conference is trust. The key word for public service future is definitely trust. As Ruth was telling you, public service in Europe is under a lot of pressures. In some countries political, in some countries financial, and unfortunately in some countries both. And I think, as a Director General, that if we can create trust trust among our public, trust among our audience, then it's much, much, much harder for people that want to harm us to actually succeed. So how do you create trust? Well, of course, there's not one single recipe, but one thing is for sure. You have to set your priorities. The first priority you have to do has to do with the content. You have to decide actually what to produce. What is public service in the future? For Swedish radio, that is mainly five priorities. It's foreign coverage, sending people outside of Sweden with Swedish eyes. It's real local presence. We have 25 local stations that are broadcasting the whole day. It's news and current affairs, especially investigative journalism, original content. It's culture outside of the big cities. And it's also, of course, to make the radio digital. Because it's not enough that you set your priorities for your content, you also have to set your priorities on how to reach your audience. Public service companies in Europe have been and are still, in some way, quite snobbish, if you ask me. We say that we are so damn good, so you have to come to us. Either listen to us at FM, look at us at television, or at least come to our web pages. Two years ago, we changed that attitude at Swedish Radio. Our main mission is now to get the content to the audience, to get the conversation going. One example on how we do this is we have an embedded player that anybody could put on their website, also our competitors, also the big tabloids in Sweden. And they do. They put this player on their website and they choose what to put in it. We don't. They can put one entire channel, they can put one entire program, or they can put a segment of a program, like an interview with the Prime Minister, for instance, or with Zlatan Ibrahimovic. And when they do this, we reach a new audience, an audience that wouldn't necessarily come to us, and they get material from public service. We build trust. But we also have to change as traditional journalists, and this is what my session is about. We have to change the way we work. Journalist 1.0. That's me. I've been a journalist since I was 21. Traditional journalist. I know what kind of story I want to do. Maybe I talk to an editor. I go out. I look for the information I need. I put my story together. Someone is in charge. We broadcast it. Maybe the audience can comment on it afterwards on our website. And I get paid. And someone is liable. Journalist. 2.0, that's social media, basically, where anybody claims to be a journalist. You produce, you air it, or you put it on Twitter. If it's right, doesn't really matter, because if it's wrong, you correct it afterwards. Everybody contributes. You don't get paid, usually, and nobody is liable. And the future, if you ask me, is journalist 3.0. If we, as traditional journalists... Don't realize the fact that social media is out there. If we don't use it for our benefit, then we will be out of business. So Journalist 3.0 is a two-way true dialogue with your audience. It's not abdicating. It's not handing over the microphone, letting other people do your job. You still have to be the journalist who is valuating facts. But you have to have a dialogue with your audience, (coughs) read audience participation, before you start to do your job. Already at the morning meeting, in the newsrooms, already before you start to make your documentary, or already before you start to host your morning show. To be able to do that, there will be an increased importance that the staff has some nice personalities, otherwise people will not want to have a dialogue with them. And we have to be skillful and we have have to have a great deal of knowledge. Authenticity will be all more important. And there will be more emphasis on local matters because local matters are closer to people's heart and they will be able to participate more. So we will see an increase in journalistic differentiation. So how do we use this in practice? I will give you some examples from Swedish radio as of 2013. Public network. We started with one public network at one local station up in north to see if it's going to work. At these local stations we have a staff of maybe 15, 16 people and they do radio programs from 6 in the morning until 6 in the afternoon and they also produce on the web. They went out and asked the public, do you want to contribute? 300 people signed up in the first phase. 300 people are now contributing in the morning on what kind of topics should they cover during that day. They don't decide, but they send in the message. This is going on in my neighborhood, or in my school, or in my workplace. We have four daily news reporters at this radio station. Of course, the variety of news is this much bigger now, when 300 people are participating instead of the same four every morning. And then you can also use these people for interviews or for knowledge if you need it. We are now uh, rolling this out to all the 25 local stations. It's a big, huge success. The other example is called the Earth. It's a social science program, heavy science, in our P1, which is a speech-only channel for mature people with a high degree. It starts on the Internet. It starts as a blog. Science people from from all over Sweden are participating in a debate on the blog. And then a reporter and an editor chooses the topic that is of most interest for people and they make a radio program afterwards. So it starts with a discussion from qualified people from the audience on the internet and afterwards we do the radio program. The third example is quite easy. Everybody in our newsrooms should be on Twitter. It's not an option And it's not, as we were hearing in the first session, to actually promote our news. This is not what Twitter is all about. Of course, you can do that also. Twitter is a tool to get information, to get news, to get new sources, to get new people, to get people that would never be aired otherwise because you wouldn't know that they existed. And you find them on Twitter. Then, of course, two sources on Twitter are not good enough to do a story because Twitter is not only <coughs> al- always reliable and not always correct, but it's a very good tool. If you're a public service company, you also have to pay and play a certain role within a democratic society. And I will show you now the example on journalist 3.0 that I'm currently most proud of that we have produced. We have had a debate for several weeks in Sweden about what kind of words are okay to use ...without being called a racist. This debate was taking place mainly in the parliament... ...among white middle-aged people... ...or on the editorial pages of the newspapers... ...also white middle-aged people. We had an urban station uh, in Stockholm... ...and they thought, let's turn the question around. Let's go out and ask the people... ...that are receivers of these words... ...how it feels to be a receiver of a racist remark. They produced this little video even though we are a radio company and they placed it on YouTube. Frustration, ilska. Man vaknar, loggar in på Twitter, på Facebook, kollar mejlet. Boom. Boom! Där är det. Det känns som att man reser tillbaka i tiden. Man måste bara vara förberedd på det liksom.
1: Jag får blackout. Man tänker att en gång är ingen gång. Fast det är ju det. En gång är ju en gång. Sa de vad jag tror att de faktiskt sa? På gymmet pausen I skolan På ett möte
3: I kroka När man promenerar på tottoaren så hör man någon Säg, säg Så vad du menar Du kan få låtsas att du är svensk, men du är ju ingen, inte det Neger Invandrajävel
1: Svarskalle Apa Guldjävel Lakristroll Neger och det är där
3: Åk hem till ditt land Så
1: slipper man ju
3: Har inte kommit längre Det här är på allvar På riktigt Enough is enough Det räcker med So this video was not only placed on YouTube, it was also placed on our website. Uh, The traffic increased by 200%. But most importantly, they also created a hashtag on Twitter. And through that hashtag, they got 600 stories within the first three days. 600 stories from ordinary people out there who actually told their, their story how it felt to be a receiver of a racist remark. And out of these 600 stories, they made radio programs for an entire week and they turned the whole debate around in Sweden and it was a big uh, debate also in Parliament about this, this video. So this is a way how public service can build trust because these people hardly knew that Swedish radio ever existed before we did this story. So this is a very good example, I think, of Journalist 3.0 because I think that the biggest threat towards us are two. One is that people, other people, take us for granted. For instance, politicians, so they don't give us the funding we need. But the second threat is that we take ourselves for granted. That we have such a good position, that we are so qualified, (coughs) that we forgot to change with the environment around us. And if we don't do that... We will not be able to keep these figures. That I'm also very proud of. These are trust figures released by the European Commission. Radio, in general, is more trusted than television, more trusted than the press, for sure. And as you can see, Swedish radio is the most trusted radio company in Europe. But we have to work on it. Thank you.
0: So um, I believe it's not going to rush off immediately after this. So if you want to follow up um, on the, the range of stuff they do, which is fascinating, then I'm sure she'd be happy to talk to people. But bring it back home <laughs> to the BBC, truly. Really, you going to give us a couple examples of examples of
4: that kind of stuff, but you know, from the cold face, actually working it, uh, in the newsroom of the BBC, trying to handle some of this social media stuff. Um, Good morning everyone. Um, actually I'm probably just going to show you one slide <laughs> um, and I just want to focus around maybe one example which will hopefully um, give you a sense of the sort of stuff that my team does. Um, as Charlie mentioned earlier the team I work in um, is called the UGC and Social Media Hub uh, embedded within the BBC Newsroom. It's probably the newest team, one of the newest teams in the BBC Newsroom. It's been going for about seven years um, and I've been part of the team for about the last five or so. Um, and as the name suggests, our main um, area of activity is uh, dealing with content, UGC content, that gets sent into us directly by BBC News audiences, uh, but also uh, going out into the wider web, onto social media, finding content, uh, looking at it, checking it out, and then trying to get the best of that on air. Um, I personally find this issue of trust really, really interesting, um, and I think one of the things that I've particularly noticed in the work that we are involved with, that where trust really seems to magnify, is when you can combine a few factors. One is um, the diversity of the sources. And Mary Hockaday, for, for those of you here, she was grilled a bit on the issue of diversity in the BBC. And I think one of the things that's probably missed in this diversity uh, debate is, how diverse are the sources that you are looking at in terms of trying to find news And I think one of the things that I'm very lucky with in terms of the team that I work in is that that is effectively what um, our reason for existence is, to try and go to as many different sources as possible. And, you know, the audience is a fantastic source... Uh, uh, in their own right, away from the the official government agencies and experts and institutions that uh, normal journalists uh, go to for content uh, and information. Um, And then social media is another big example of where we can get uh, amazing potential leads, stories that we can then um, ingest into our own uh, newsroom conversations and get them onto our bulletins, onto our website, onto our radio programmes. Um, as quickly as possible so diversity of sources I think is a key aspect of trust I think speed of editorial judgement is increasingly, increasingly a vital part of any news organisation um, and the third aspect I guess would be the delivery um, of what we have discovered and our news stories to all of the different platforms who we talked about the different ways that you can get your content out and I think that's a very very important part you know you could be doing great journalism but if no one knows about it then there's little value in it Um, So those are the three areas that I think are increasingly becoming important in the way uh, news organisations and individual journalists themselves uh, deal with um, the very rapidly changing world that we're in. So I just want to talk about one example as as, as a way of giving you a sense of how my team works. Um, Before I play this video, it's it's slightly uncomfortable viewing, um, but if it helps, um, the conclusion that our team reached was that it was... uh, A setup. Um, Now, this is a video that was doing the rounds uh, on Twitter. um, I think in the summer of last year, uh, at the period when the coverage of Syria was at a sort of heightened level across um, many news agendas, Um, and it's probably one of the most complex stories that I can think of that my team, but also the wider BBC newsroom, has ever had to deal with. And the context around this video was that um, it was gaining a lot of chatter and buzz on Twitter and Facebook at the time. Um, And the chatter around it was that um, this was a video of a Syrian activist who had been captured by um, Assad's men um, and was being buried alive in a hole uh, as punishment for uploading video uh, onto YouTube. and I, I noticed that morning when we started picking up on this chatter that it had already been retweeted and shared and commented on by quite respectable Middle East correspondents as well as a few <coughs> news organisations. And one of the key tasks that uh, the head of the BBC News Foreign News Gathering had given us was to try and look into this a bit more and see if we can get, uh, assess some sort of credibility because if it was genuine, then BBC News was quite uh, understandably very keen to broadcast it. Um, so, the moment of judgment, see if this
3: video actually works. Oh. <laughs> بعدوا ليك له الحيوانات.
0: نقتلي يا حيوان الحيوان. يا, يا
3: لا إل الله إله إلا بشار حيوان. يا الله. الحيوان.
4: Um, so apologies again if you found that uncomfortable viewing, I know it's not an easy, wa- uh, easy watch um, but when we looked at this video there are, a few th- there are a couple of key things that made us question whether this was a real video or not uh, just out of interest, any thoughts on what you've seen would, would there be any alarm bells that would ring? Apparently
0: it cuts out suddenly at the end Yeah.
4: Doesn't run definitely if that was one of the key things um, the other thing that we we were slightly suspicious about was that this is a guy who's being buried alive. His um, mouth is sort of uh, under a lot of dirt, but the audio seems very clear um, of him shouting and screaming and being and and um, the translation that we checked out. Uh, he, you know, he was sort of giving a bit of a narration as to what you know. Um, not sort what happened to him, but sort of begging and pleading and, and so on. Um, and so there were, and that was the second uh, key thing that it cuts out the minute his head is covered, um, which again made us a little bit suspicious that you know was this a sort of a setup um, and those were the two sort of initial questions we had, which was enough at the first stage of sort of checking out that we were um, pass the message on to the newsroom, but can um, you know we want to do some more checking on this video. We've got some things that we need. We're not quite sure about. Um, and where I think we, as a news organisation, are very lucky um, that we have access to a lot of great expertise within uh, the newsroom. And so I managed to get in touch with um, a, one of the people at BBC Monitoring, who's a Syrian specialist. himself is a Syrian, um, and also a couple of people from BBC Arabic to take a look at this video as well. Um, and During the process of that conversation, one of the other things that emerged very quickly was that there had been a number of cases that had been spotted um, where videos had been um, proven to be fake during the course of the Syrian conflict, from both sides, from activists, but also from uh, Assad's men as well. Um, And that, again, rang another alarm bell um, to want us to look at this video in a bit more detail um, at this point, um, I just sent out a tweet uh, on um, on Twitter just telling the anyone who was interested on Twitter that we had some suspicions about uh, this video, um, and pretty much you know within a few minutes of me sending this tweet out other people on Twitter started um, picking up on this as well um, and very soon we noticed one guy actually did an audio analysis of the actual audio file and noticed some discrepancies in the way the audio um, appeared to be potentially mixed together and layered um, on top of the video um, other people um, also um, helped with looking at sort of interrogating the original source of this video. Whilst a number of sort of well-known Syrian activist channels had tweeted this or put it posted it on their Facebook channels, when we look back to the original source um, account that was uh, posting this, it wasn't a source that we were familiar with during the course of the previous sort of year, where we'd been looking at these various social media sources and began to. Um, so, sort of understand the credibility of different accounts and who was uploading them, who was behind them, and what sort of stuff they were uploading. Um, we did more checking again, um, and one of the, um, the guys at uh, BBC Monitoring you know, confirmed a few things for us that actually the accents do check out, they're Alawite accents, which are traditionally the um, tribe that uh, Assad's uh, military come from. Um, and he also said, um, we, we were a bit unsure, so why these guys got trainers? Is that sort of proper military uniform? And he also said, well, actually, yeah, it's quite common for a lot of them to wear trainers rather than army boots because trainers are a lot more comfortable and the army boots are really crap at you know, you know, doing the job that they need to be doing as soldiers. Um, and so that made us think um, that if it was a setup, it was potentially a setup from the Assad side um, of the conflict, where they potentially wanted to try and set up a video which may have acted as sort of a warning shot um, to activists to stop uploading videos and sharing content on, on social media. We've come across similar examples from the other side where potential abuses by Assad's men have been faked and there was one example that we'd come across of a boy that apparently was being beaten by uh, a boot by men dressed in Assad's uh, army uniform but when we actually looked at the video in a bit more detail frame by frame we noticed that the boot kept missing him and it wasn't (laughs) actually hitting him Uh, um, and it's stuff that you wouldn't obviously notice unless you're really you know looking at it with that level of, sort of forensic analysis or uh, applying that level of judgment. Um, and so I guess this is just an example of, of many, many different types of examples of the types of techniques that we use. And I think the key message, um, if I can leave you with, is that um, lots of great tools are emerging all the time that help us technically to uh, interrogate data in terms of whether it's pictures or videos, the source of original content the geographic location that it was uploaded, the credibility of particular accounts. But it's really important that you combine that with your own journalistic expertise, your journalistic judgment. And I think that has been mentioned earlier, where in many ways, um, trust is actually a growth industry in journalism. And that's something that's really important for us as journalists to be aware of, that this is something that we can contribute to this wider conversation in social media. My instinct, not based on real evidence, but my hunch, is that as the chatter reaches deafening proportions in social media, as more and more people start joining these conversations, what will really um, be of great value within this uh, ocean of chatter is real um, nuggets of, truthful analysis and journalistic judgement, which we as journalists, I think, can provide. So I'll end it there. So,
0: uh, because they're all incredibly um, sure. good at the editing themselves, <laughs> <laughs> which you'd expect, seen senior journalists like this, we've got a little bit of time for some very quick questions, if people want to ask any questions very quickly. Um, hello, my name is Nazanin, Ansari, I'm a
3: journalist. Uh, regarding your emphasis on social media and trust, number one, uh, how how uh, are you? Um, can you be confident about the sources on social media? Because certainly, in the running media people that I cover, a lot of them have multiple identities. That's number one. And number two, how can social media? Be about the age range, what is the age range of the population, and what diversity is there in the social media? so that Twitter
0: itself can become, is it a real uh, reflection of the society
3: at large? Yeah, good question, yeah. Well, the second question first. Uh, uh, Twitter is not a reflection of the o- audience at all, I would say. It's one tool, but social media is so much more than Twitter. Uh, Facebook is another tool, and at least in Sweden it's now becoming the main tool uh, ...plays for people 50 above and not for others. So uh, the young people are leaving Facebook for Instagram and other places. So uh, I think you have to have a spread and a variety. Uh, The second, uh, or the first question, uh, what we did at Swedish Radio... ...is that we published actually internally a social media handbook... uh, ...which is a guideline uh, for everybody working at Swedish Radio... ...on how to use social media, all the different types but also what to think of, how to verify your sources, uh, and and what your responsibility is. Because this is really important, and that's why I was saying at my session that two sources on Twitter are not two sources. There are two people on Twitter, and you still have to do your journalistic work. And the lady who is actually in charge of this handbook, she just came into the room, she's standing over there with the red hair. So if you want to ask her any more about the social media handbook, please feel free to do so, and we also have it as a PDF in English if you want to download it.
4: Yeah, just to add what Sila's saying, you know, I think it depends very much what the social media platform is because they tend to attract different age ranges and also different audiences and I think we, there is a danger that we quite often um, just fall into the trap of the sort of the Western established social media accounts as well in terms of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but, you know, if you're in China, very few people use those sorts of accounts and I think there's as much importance of understanding your sort of potential audience and where they are in the world... Um, and so I think it's very important that we constantly stay on top of, you know, understanding the differences in these platforms and what those potential audiences are. Um, and uh, I guess, yes, so what was the second point? The first point we that you. Yeah, and I guess that issue of checking sources, you know, that as an activity has been, you know, a part of a journalistic's core skill ever since journalism first started, and so I think the only thing that's changed is just making sure that that activity um, <coughs> is just updated and refreshed, and just by having awareness of the technology and the different sources that are available now. Anyone else put on there?
0: Yeah, I... Uh, Nash, I'm a human Rights and I student in Kingston University. Uh, I think all the social media, we be talking about this they said uh, targeting the the cities uh, of the European countries rather the refugees and asylum seekers. I give you an example when I was doing my research in Sweden Malmo, one of the cities about uh, immigration coming to Sweden, right, most of it. They don't have any access to to case high school, whatever, whatever. <coughs> So the only option was there the the the, 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 the matches like a black couple most of
3: it. They target them. They 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 put, uh, And I I found out there's a a huge barrier, a gap between our origin Swedish and the people who are coming there because they're not uh, familiar with the language, they're not familiar
0: with uh, with their culture. So so I found out that all those media we've been talking about uh, are not affected. They've been isolated. It's not just a case of Sweden. Even here, or in Poland, also the same. So so, so, uh, uh, my suggestion is that the social media could could be part of... Targeting those, to integrate them, to society, to feel them they are exist, they feel them they are part of the the new life. So the new life needs a new a new recruitment of how to engage them with our, others. It's a very interesting point, mm-hmm. and I suggest that you talk to Yasmin, that's the researcher that Sula referred to, who's going to be talking later uh, at 12:30 about precisely that issue. It's a really fascinating issue about how you reach you know different communities, within the community. I'm going to take another question as well. Ben. Hi, my name is Politek. I'm just curious what your thoughts were about the role of public broadcasters to create content in English for foreign audiences abroad. I'm um, myself from the Czech Republic. I know radio, the Czech radio does some of it. Um, BBC obviously does a lot of it. Just curious if, I'm not sure if in Sweden you do that. Um, for those living in Sweden that might
4: not be from Sweden but also for those living abroad?
3: Well, first of all, we have five minority languages in Sweden that we are obliged to do. So we do. uh, Gladly so, also I must say. And then we have some immigrant languages. We do uh, Arabic. We do Somali. We do Pershtu. Uh, and we do uh, al- Albanian uh, and that's because most of the immigrants in Sweden are coming from those countries uh, and we also have a daily <coughs> broadcast in FM on English uh, and we also do English on the web, Russian and German and this is also distributed all over the world so. okay.
0: We're up One last question, anybody? No, 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 yes, go right the right back, shout out uh, Yeah, this is the, uh, <laughs> You mentioned the fact that one um, of the core um, things
3: that you like about the UK is that mm-hmm. during a crisis, uh, during the crisis, you are able to console with the audience. But my question is, the basic tenet kind of journalism is that we need to displace ourselves from the story. If you are consoling people about
4: the current, are you not actively participating in the story? Mm. Good
0: question. Really? Did you get that?
1: Sorry. Did yeah, I, I think the question is, uh, do you um, um, m- not perform your job well if you're about consolation and not about journalism? Is that what, what you're saying?
0: Or even just being engaged at all when the story's sort of still happening and playing out? If you're crowdsourcing and responding and interactive, are you losing your objectivity, I guess?
1: Yeah, well, I, I think in this case the the... It's it's a case-by-case case approach. I think this strategy uh, took place in a, a few hours' time, and then it was about mourning uh, uh, on the one hand and about the question why and what has happened on the other hand. And the point that I was making is that in this specific case, the balance between, let's say, uh, hardcore journalism and being uh, um, a, a square where the whole Norwegian population could mourn about what happened, that I think NRK was really aware of that they needed to find a balance in this. And what I, the point I try to make is that I come from a culture where the reflex is, we need to do journalism and we sh- push anything else aside. And, and my point is, think about the balance and, and, of course, you're right. If, if the story is still developing while you start transmitting, then you choose maybe a different balance than in this case. But, it's, but I try to make the point is be aware of what it does to your, to your audience and reflect on this, not only in a, always a journalistic way. OK. Listen, we're going
0: to have to stop it there because we're out of time. But what I just want to let you know is that the next session here, we have a break now for half an hour, the next session here at 11.30... Basically, the theme goes on. It's about skills for the future. So we've got people talking about what kind of skills do you need to put this kind of journalism into practice. And then at 12.30, we've got two people, including Yasmin, who's going to be talking about her research on using social media to reach more diverse communities. And in the afternoon, you've got sessions on journalism and data journalism. So stay in the walls and... Through the day if you want that kind of more practical social media stuff, but don't forget, there's also sessions in the other theatre as well. Thanks very much, Dr.